You are listening to Secret Handshake, the podcast covering the movies that help you identify your friends and maybe make a few more along the way. Coming up, the second installment in our Handshake miniseries covering Nicholas Winding Refn's Too Old to Die Young, featuring figure skating, underage flesh, apocalyptic monologues, James Urbaniak, Barry Manilow, rape porn, sex dungeons, car chases, a murder hammer, and Ron Perlman's terrifying teeth. Martin. Yes. Give me an F. Give me an A. Give me an S. Give me a C. Give me an ism. What does that spell? Fastism! Welcome back to another edition of Secret Handshake. I'm your host, Jacob Knight, and joining me as always is Martin Carlson. Martin, did this get any better for you, baby? Significantly better. Um, I wouldn't I wouldn't say night and day. Um, these are really elements I liked at the first three episodes, but this really, episodes four and five are so much more structured. Um, specifically, episode five is like a mini movie where it just has like action beats and character beats and like we talked earlier about you know his actual arc for martin in that episode and also in the previous episode too of a sense of change in him um i think also just like paced better funnier i think episode five is one of the funniest episodes for as fucked up as it is um really funny so very much enjoyed uh these two versus the first three yeah because this was the segment that was part of the mini movie that he cut together when this actually premiered at Cannes called North of Hollywood, West of Hell, that uh, he cut into like a 140 minute basically like premiere. So it kind of showed what the series was going to be, even though it was still out of order. Like he, it was notable that he cut from the middle of the series. And that's where a lot of the quotes that he dropped about like, oh, you can watch this out of order, blah, 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 came from, which when you watch this, like I couldn't imagine this just being like your introduction to everything because like this feels sort of like a payoff. And especially at the end of episode five, like you get 
like a legit almost like break with the way that that uh, kind of story ends to where it, it feels distinctly like the midway point in the narrative. Yeah, it, it definitely. I feel if you started with four, you might be OK if you went, you know, four to five, um, because, again, there's so the first three are so like impressionistic and just takes a while, just like kind of leading into the world. I wouldn't recommend it. Um, but this is the first that actually has like real character plot beats. There's a lot more, again, like you think we talked earlier about in the previous episode about, I think the ep second episode where they're in Mexico is about 20 minutes of plot stretched over an hour and 15 minutes and, or an hour and 35 minutes. Um, and this one feels like, especially episode five, feels like an actual, like, every minute is something happening and there's plot happening. Um, it just kind of goes into, like, a whole different speed, um, which is why I really kind of piqued my interest. It, yeah, the series become, or long movie or whatever the fuck we want to call it, work, motion, work of uh, motion picture making <laughs> for streaming. Um like it, it like Martin finds a sense of purpose to where it there's there's a, a real momentum to what's happening on screen. It's just that, like, again, I, I I'm stuck or at least struck by the idea that, like, you would still follow this guy without any of the backstory of like, OK, well, why is he doing this? Why is he hunting these rape porn purveyors why is he basically like confronting a drug dealer and saying like you know i need something else to do like i'm not doing this for you anymore and like you could probably contextually like fill in those blanks and who knows like the way it was cut together it might have even been like all that stuff might have not even been present you know so but it's just kind of real interesting in terms of how he decided to to show the world this like magnum opus that he'd been working on for the better part of two years. Yeah, it's it, it again, it seems like the most accessible part of what I've seen of the show. So it completely makes sense. He put these couple episodes forward as like, hey, this this is going to this is what you're going to expect from this. Like, I think if he had gone in and shown just episode two, like out of context, like I I don't know how that would have played with a can audience. Dude, but that's the thing is that it's can. So it's like, God, they might go for the more arty, like abstract shit that's from this show and reject the the traditional kind of A to B storytelling that comes in four and five. But yeah, who knows? It's it's weird to me for a guy like Nick Reffin, who so meticulously curates his own image, you know, right down to like starting every episode of too old to die young with the hashtag by NWR. Like it's, he's all about self branding, you know? So it just, again, when you consider like his entire persona with this idea of like bringing this, this, almost like slinging a boulder over his shoulder and bringing it to can and being like, there it is. Like he rolls it down a hill and it just topples over a crowd of people. And he's like, Oh yeah, by the way, 
that's not the first boulder. Like I got two behind me that you haven't even seen yet. And you're like, all right, that's fucking weird. <laughs> well, something, I mean, speaking though about the way it has been presented though, to most of us, right. In the, the Amazon prime series. Um, I think that your point about there being a connection between Martin finding his footing or finding his purpose is like, connected formally to the, the you know the show kind of clicking into gear right and finding its its pace is cool because it kind of makes me think of the way though that like Robert Brisson would work and like Brisson would do you know a long period of the film would be very very still and and like subdued and then it would explode into like some kind of emotional you know action and it, it tied in with like what was happening to the character I'm not saying exactly what's reference doing here but similarly speaking like it's tying the filmmaking style and the the formality the formalism of filmmaking to what's happening narratively as well um which is really interesting i think i just like that you went with the brisson reference like four minutes into this episode so we know we're gonna get real pretentious on this one because <laughs> what's help. that what's that notion it's called like transcendental style right that schrader yeah. even walked like wrote about he wrote a whole book on it about brisson and ozu and everything and how their uh formal techniques kind of match the the thematics or of these stories that they were telling to really kind of heighten them and and, and showcase them the same way that that schrader would come back and do himself with something like first reform that's literally him making his his brisson transcendental style uh update on taxi driver well it's his i mean it's him straight up doing um diary of a country priest you know he's just yeah. like pulling from one specific brisson film and american gigolo's pickpocket um like he's or I oh sure I guess he did pickpocket for like American Gigolo, Light Sleeper, The Walker, they all end, uh, even Card Counter now. Um, yeah, they all have the pickpocket ending. Yeah, the, it was just all that transcendental. But it is, again, I, I really like thinking about this then as a whole versus like episode, where I know we're kind of breaking it down by episode, but it really does work as like one movement because, you know, where a symphony kind of moves too, of like you're completely what you're seeing now is depending on what came before. And, and I don't believe it belongs out of context. I think it, it, it does gain its power from, for me, like if I started before, I'm, I'd probably like to show a lot more actually, but maybe not because there's still elements of four that I don't like, I might've been like, this is weird. Um, versus like, it's such an improvement for me in terms of like it finding its footing that I'm like, Oh, I'm more into this now compared to like the drudgery for me of episode two. I like that we paired drive with this set of episodes because of the way that he brought this to can too, is that I also wondered if maybe he was in his own head presenting this, this like kind of more compact narrative uh, section of the, the, the work to be like, I'm kind of returning to that, like the neon demon and only God forgives. Like that was me kind of moving further and further into abstraction, you know? And like, I just want you, you guys to know, and who knows, it might even be for like the benefits of like the suits, like Amazon actually paying for this and being like, ah, I did do something that at least moderately resembles an accessible work here, you know? I was thinking the exact same thing while watching, I watched drive last, last night. 
and I've obviously seen it many times before, but it had been, it had been probably five years since I watched this movie. Um, and it totally clicks with, I think specifically episode five, uh, this really tight thriller with the silent, you know, badass um, hero or anti-hero kind of moving through this, this like fucked up crime world. Um, and again, it's not, it moves so much more quickly. It's one of the things you and I talked about rewatching Drive is that it's, you know, again, out of all the reference stuff, it's his most accessible. It moves, it moves the most um, traditionally, you know, from a screenplay perspective, but also from a filmmaking perspective, like there are scenes with other characters that drive the plot and it's not just pontificating about bullshit, you know, or, or pretension, you know, it's more like you have characters like Brian Cranston that are just like classic movie characters that move, the film along well there's also zero digressions too yes. it's like any any tangents or any sidebars that you ever take are like even taken or delivered like say like albert brooks's monologue to ryan gosling talking about like how he actually met brian cranston's character and talking about his leg and it's like Maybe in like a different ref and work like this might just be totally off the wall and like, you know, delivered while Brooks is shirtless and watching like, you know, a Curtis Harrington film or whatever. Like, it's totally weird. But like here, it's just like everything feels well, not traditional because it does feel like ref and kind of pushing it to the limits of like that almost like Abel Ferrara, like grindhouse meets art house aesthetic. But like, I agree with you in that episode five of too old to die young in specific feels almost like an extension of the last 40 minutes of drive. It's just like every, like all the normal stuff we've kind of skipped that. And it's once he's in the hotel room with Christina Hendricks stabbing dudes with fucking shower curtains and like shotgunning people and everything. Like we're in hell now. And like, we're just watching this guy kind of battle through with like the demons that live there. Yeah. And it just, it's very um, efficient, you know, and, and what it does. Um and and every like you're kind of getting out with drive too that every um every element um even the kind of refiny scenes like my, my favorite scenes of the movie that kind of like i think grabbed a lot of people was when they play college as a real hero and he's driving down the uh um the aqueducts with um with carrie mulligan and her son and that song's playing and it's just this beautiful romantic thing and they end up down with a little creek at the end there could be a digression in another reference that you're getting at right and this one it's so character based it's like this is them falling in love this is like this beautiful moment it kind of reminds me of like the tiger scene in manhunter it's like this way that he shows love uh it's like i'm going to show you something um and it's this very stylized thing but also very uh character and story motivated yeah when we actually get to the drive segment of this episode like that's one of the things i want to talk about is is that it I know a lot of people for obvious reasons reference Walter Hill and the driver specifically um, when talking about drive influences. But like to me, drive is like compressing all of the early Michael Mann uh, in particular kind of stylistic ticks and, and storytelling like 
his whole like aesthetic kind of materializes before your eyes. And the one thing that he steals from man in specific is how the things that aren't said and the silences are just as important as any of the words. And it's like you filling in like all of this longing and angst and love for one another that all of his characters kind of share. It's that, that muted romanticism that man has always been just absolutely terrific at that he transmutes and makes his own because he's, he almost shoots it. And I feel like we're getting weight ahead of ourselves here. So we'll, we'll jump into the actual volumes first or, but like, it feels like him almost making a musical to one degree or another and like him filtering those ideas and, and that elemental storytelling through like an MTV or post MTV really style of like heightened uh, abstract musical. Yeah, very much so. Um, and yeah, I, I, we should get back to the show, but you know, it very much um, has the, element. this is the show Martin. Yeah. Sorry. The, the, <laughs> Back to too old, you know, too old to die young, uh, but that there's an elemental quality to especially drive that I think really connects to man of like elemental love, right? It's like man and woman, pure romance, like the details fall away. There's no sense of like, oh, what is he like about Irene? No, it's it's two beautiful people, star-crossed lovers. That's it. You know, and Reffin's not interested in anything more than that. You know, it's not like, oh, she's quirky or or he's he's like he's quiet as fuck and he's handsome. Like that's it. Yeah. <laughs> so it's the stuff of sonnets, you know. Yeah. Not to get again too pretentious, but it's like that's what he's doing. He's he's literally writing with images like something that you can feel, you yes. know, and that's what he's trying to capture there is like this fleeting notion of doomed love between like this nameless guy and the, the, the angel that lives next door to him. Yes. But you want to get to volume four? Let's do it. All right.
All right, so volume four, The Tower, Too Old to Die Young. Martin, how did the opening with Nell Tiger Free make you feel in your funny parts? All sorts of uncomfortable. Um, I mean, definitely a very um, in-your-face kind of scene of it's very sexy, um, and she's staring at Martin slash at you, at the audience, um, and it's this this very, but very uncomfortable too because the character is underage, you know, and very similar to like the strawberry character in Red Rocket, where it's like putting you in the shoes of this lead character of like you're guilty too for being you know attracted. So the actress is of age in real life, but the point of the fact you know her character is supposed to be underage, and it just makes you feel I don't know, kind of weird, but I think that's the point, right? Yeah, it feels practically like a dare. You know, like he's he's daring you to look away, especially after she starts taking the clothes off and is in that very uh, revealing lingerie and his camera just lingers on her her like right down to like the navel piercing and everything. And then Martin starts crawling across the floor like a dog towards her like it's him fetishizing again, like 100 percent. And you're we're now seeing. Because I think it's supposed to be a dream of Martin's because it's so surreal the way it kind of plays out um, in that it's in his kind of mind. And you wonder if we're seeing his vision of uh, his girlfriend, his his underage girlfriend, and how he kind of does everything almost in her service or in the service to like his weird – fetishistic idealized viewpoint of her yeah and it's we were talking earlier but it does seem connected to he's falling into a world that really dehumanizes people but especially women and and maybe this kind of sense of like i also am weirdly connected to this woman you know and i don't think he dehumanizes the dream is quite the opposite but that she has this power over him, which definitely connects to the opening monologue of Larry, you know, from the first episode of Larry talking about women are plain evil. Like they, they ruin your life. They rule, they rule your life. This feels like that kind of like shamanistic quality that she has over him, some kind of control. I also wonder if the sexuality again is, is Nick, like Nick Reffin's way of being like, no matter how, here his intentions might be he's still sexualizing an underage girl and so are you in the process by like thinking that like anything he might be doing throughout the course of this this episode because this is a big episode for martin in like terms of like how you mentioned earlier his arc or like where he starts moving as like a a, a human being but it's almost like no matter how noble his intentions or how servicing his intentions might be he still he wants to fuck a 16 year old girl in his head you know and it's Reffin's not shy about always leaving a layer of filth on top of everything and like uncomfortable grime yeah because you think about martin in the early episodes specifically the first episode and he's just this really disaffected fuck right i mean he's so cold and even the way he is with her is very much like, she's like, I want you to meet my dad. He's like, why? 
I guess, you know, and he, he kind of goes with the flow a little bit too. Like he doesn't really seem to care about her that much. Like when they kind of break up partly, I guess in the first, second episode, she's like, fuck you. And he's like, all right, see ya, you know? And, and I think this is also a scene that shows that he now also does need her, you know, that he's crossed, he's crossed like a point where it's like, actually maybe is in love with her. And again, as, as fucked up and backwards as that is with her being underage, um, but I think that's kind of going on there too, that she, he kind of kept his distance from her a little bit. And now it's like, he's fully in with that. These two volumes also have two of the best title drops of the entire series, uh, yeah. because like the way it goes from the dream and cuts to like some random pedophiles, like hotel room where he's just happens to be watching Curtis Harrington's night tide with Dennis Hopper in it. A, a movie where Dennis Hopper basically falls in love with a mermaid, um, like really strange detail, but also a great reminder of like the type of references that Refn pulls from all the time and the the distinct set of influences. Like it's always easy to forget when watching his movies that like this is a guy who put out a whole movie poster book for like celebrating exploitation movies called the act of seeing, you know, and that he is a legit like exploitation cinema, like scholar goes out of his way to like preserve stuff and put them on uh, the buy NWR like website, you know, Jimmy McDonough, the very uh, infamous Andy Milligan uh, biographer and Bill Landis, uh, co-conspirator is the executive like editor of Nick Reffin's website. Like he loves this fucking culture, you know? So like, of course he he's pulling, like he's putting like Dennis Hopper and night tide in on like on a random, like hotel, uh, you know, movie screen. But then I love that the dude just gets out of bed, wanders to the door and it's just Martin just silently pops him in the head as soon as it opens and the credits drop and you're like, Oh fuck, this is awesome. Yes. Yes. I, that was probably my favorite needle drop out of the, what I've seen so far and kind of going into the credits. Um, and then it, the episode really starts. Then you, you start to see quickly that, Martin, there's a, a chink in his armor, maybe, you know, of I'm not comfortable with what Damien, his his kind of mob boss, asking him to do. He has no trouble killing, but it's kind of like after he's had the conversation with um, and the relationship he's building with, with Vigo is that if I'm going to kill, I need to know who these people are. Like, he, I think his, probably he felt so good after killing the pedophile. That was who Vigo led him. I don't want to well, kill Vigo's people. Vigo's very open with the information too, is that he's, he's like, you see that guy, he's been raping his daughter for like going on two years yeah, yeah. and telling, you know, her mother that he'll kill. He'll, he's telling the girl that he'll kill her mother. If she ever tells anybody, how do you feel about that? And that just makes it that much easier for them to go over and stab that guy in the throat after like a PTSD meeting. You know, it's where Vigo's very clear in his intentions. You know, when Martin goes and works for Damien as a gangster, like he has no idea. Like he literally asks, you know, for a task at one point, why am I doing this? Like, wh why am I going and killing this guy for you? And the guy's like, don't worry about it. You know, like it's not. 
it's not up to you. And then he finds out that he basically owes him like $5,000 or whatever. And instead of killing him, like takes him to just pay Damien and straight up tells him, he's like, I'm not killing people for fucking like a couple grand. Like that's ridiculous. That's, and it's weird. It's one of the things I do want to get to as we kind of move along here, but it's almost like this starts to establish some semblance of a morality, uh, as warped as it might be. Um, but I think it's because like the whole show really starts to crystallize here in the sense that it becomes about how people operate and define their morality inside of like these systems. And then after these systems kind of collapse and you're kind of left with nothing, but this, this apocalyptic wasteland of humanity. Yeah, and then Vigo's his his obviously his his guide through this world because Vigo's the guy who was you know an F, FBI agent who obviously has become disillusioned by the entire planet and by anything that he thought he was doing as an agent and now is you know being a, a vigilante and killing guilty people like uh, delivering true justice um, and of course it's attracted to Martin because Martin's looking for a cause. But Martin's also kind of a sociopath. It's one of those things where it's like you almost see him waking up as a human being a little bit. Because the first episode, it's like his partner and friend is fucking dead. He doesn't give a shit. Like he genuinely does not care about anybody in the first episode. And the arc, I mean, again, I've only watched what I've watched, but it seems that the arc is like this human being kind of coming to life as backwards as it kind of is. There's elements of like he's starting to give a shit a little bit. Well, and you also wonder if it's like, you know, Vigo has that incredibly long monologue about how human society essentially built itself itself up to be like the pinnacle of achievement. But as we became more modern and we became less civilized to a degree and how like the systems that that we built like we became slaves to them like he he goes through this entire almost like Travis Bickle-esque like uh, grand uh, diagnosing of like the human condition you know but you wonder if looking back on Martin's early blankness it's intentional on Reffin's part a lot in the same way that I, again, I love that we pair drive with these episodes is that there's a blankness to Ryan Gosling in there. And like, part of that is obviously the way that Nick Reffin likes to direct his pretty boy actors is that they become Ken dolls for him to place inside of these very gruesome tableaus and do what, you know, he wants them to do, you know, regardless of how slow he wants them to move their arms or turn their heads or whatever. It's just like they're playing into this world that he's creating. But like where the the blankness on Gosling kind of also presented a sort of sociopath uh, uh, persona or hit it more or less like here. This almost feels like a comment on how this system that Martin bought into the police and how he became an instrument of violence for them in the name of like societal justice like that totally ground him down to where he doesn't even feel anything anymore because it's like even the the instruments of like societal justice become completely tainted by, you know, evil like gang members like Damien who who it infect this society. Well what 
I, I see that. I think what could be helpful, um, again, for such an esoteric kind of show, if I got a sense of context of who he was before he became a cop would be really helpful because all I see him as is, as, as you're talking about, this Ken Doll character from, you know, the first episode of this cold, detached guy. I don't have context to who he was before. I, I think about think about the amazing episode of um, We Own the City, a much different show, but where you see John Bernthal start as a cadet. And the guy's like, hey, man, fuck everything you learn in the, you know, in uh, police school and the academy. This is Baltimore. And then to have him repeat that line and show that this character is, has been ruined by the system of Baltimore, right? The police in Baltimore have changed him. I just don't have the sense of where point A is. All I see, I'm already at point B um, at the beginning of the show. I think there's a good amount of context clues, though, because they do continuously bring up like how young Martin is, how he got to homicide by like 30. So like you can kind of piece together. He's he's more or less an overachiever. He's good at his job, but he's also OK with being partnered with somebody like Larry, who's like obviously a dirty a cop, an awful misogynist who's always showing him like these pictures of these these random like strippers that he's, you know, having sex with and doing blow with and everything, because it is the the one thing, though, is that like we don't even really ever see Martin imbibe. Like he's not doing like he's offered coke. He sits in a bar and he has like a beer like he's he's clearly not like a party animal or somebody who's really engaging in any kind of real social activities. So like you wonder if he's just sort of one of these lone over like loner overachiever types who just latched on, you know, to, to becoming a cop and he was good at it, but it's also like he was just as susceptible to all the dirt as anybody else. I feel like you can, again, you can feel in the blanks enough that you kind of get who he was. And now we get into the rather kind of not simplistic, but like, because I don't think it's simplistic and and too old to die young at all, but it could be simplistic in like another director or storytellers like hands to where it's like, he rejects like the uh, civilized justice for like a more primal uh, application of the idea just outside of like the societal structures. Well, and that, I agree there, and it totally connects to our, our favorite scene, mutual favorite scene in the police station from episode four. Uh, you quoted it earlier with a fascism quote. Uh, and you told me before I watched, like, there's you're like, this is there's a scene in this episode you're gonna it's gonna blow your mind, and it really did. And so for listeners, uh, it's Martin being the one quiet character during a very raucous um, uh, police meeting, uh, and. Uh, again, our, our, our captain is, he has, a, has a ukulele on his back and leads them all in a chance of, of, to say fascism. Martin's looking around like, what the hell's going on? And then he plays a little song for them on the ukulele. Um, and he starts saying shit about like his mother and stuff. And it's super pretentious and weird. But like, if we want to get into like the very obvious symbolism of like, the police are a bunch of fucking clowns. Like beyond being like violent, like these are these fucking clowns. And like, then you meet, that's the opposite of Vigo. Like Vigo is like this like calm and collected energy in the show. Then you have Hart Bachner is the opposite side of the fucking spectrum. 
if these are his two like male authority figures, I mean, they couldn't be more different. Yeah, Bachner delivers a fascism chant with the enthusiasm of like a coked up gym coach. Is that you're just like, what is going on with this guy? Like he even does like the gay voice where he's like, and now we're going to have a moment of silence for our brothers and sisters who have like applied to the cause. And you're like, oh, my God, like they're literally praying at that point for all of the clean cops. It's the people who have bought into doing the job correctly that he's kind of making fun of and then being like, but we all know what's happening here. We're just a bunch of fascist assholes who like apply our power in the worst way possible. Like it's, yeah. it's Reffin just operating completely without a paddle and making all of the quiet parts really loud. Yeah. I, mean, it, I think if I didn't have the context of what I've learned watching the show and reconnecting with Reffin and talking to you about it, is that he's a provocateur and he also just likes to fuck with people. He likes to fuck with the audience. Like this is such an obvious scene, but like, that's the point. And like, it's not him being like, Oh, look how deep I am. It's like, no, I'm just going to fucking throw it out there. Subtext is text, right? It's just there. <laughs> like, it's just, there's nothing to read into it beyond like the buffoonery of what we're seeing. Well, I also like how self-aware he is about how much shit that he talks and how much like pretension he kind of brings to his works because like I've interviewed him twice. I interviewed him for the aforementioned book, the act of seeing poster book. And then I interviewed him for neon demon, him and Cliff Martinez for it. And like, I remember meeting them. It was one of the funnier, weirder things is like, I literally just sat around a coffee table with Nick Reffin and Cliff Martinez and Nick Reffin just, he's, he was running a little behind on his interviews and he literally just kind of comes into the room and he's like, Oh, we have barbecue in the other room. And I'm like, Oh, I'm sorry, man. I just ate like, and I'm in Texas, man. I eat barbecue all the time. He's like, yeah, I don't know how you people do it. It's so heavy and it's so hot here. And then he just, he just slowly pulls this thing out of his pocket and he starts to unwrap it and he goes, do you want any chocolate? It's organic. And I was like, is Nick Raffin offering me chocolate? And I was like, yeah, sure. Why not? So I just sit there and we start eating candy together. But I, I interviewed him because one of our favorite films that we did a whole episode on the astrologer, I was at the All screening right. where he introduced the astrologer for the first time after it was discovered at Agfa and he had a quote in it and it was while he in that speech and it was while he was in production for Neon Demon is that he was like, I love this movie so much that there's a sequence in it that I stole and I want to put into Neon Demon. So after you see this, you'll have to look for it in, in my next movie. And I was like, oh, shit. And I remember like the when I saw Neon Demon at the press screening. I like looked intensely. I was like, what could be the fucking astrologer reference? I don't get it. Cause I figured it was the big like breakup montage. That seemed like the obvious right. choice that Reffin would, would swipe given his kind of like stylistic similarities to Craig Denny, if we can call them that, but like, <laughs> I can but see like, it. Uh, I'll, I'll roll with yeah. it. But like, uh, you know, we're, we're going through the interview and I'm doing the, 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 questions about neon demon and then we get to the end and i'm like so i was at the astrologer screening you know that you introduced and he's like oh that movie it's crazy and i'm like yeah i know and i go so but you said a thing where you were like hey i'm gonna steal a shot from the astrologer and put it in neon demon 
I'm going to tell you, I've watched this because I told him, I was like, I've watched the astrologer like 10 times at this point, And now I've seen neon demon and I didn't see it. I was like, can you tell me like, just clue me in. And he looks me dead in the fucking eye and goes, I talk a lot of shit sometimes. <laughs> like, and I'm, but again, I, I appreciate that, that he is, pretty like for all of his goofiness and pretentiousness he's pretty self-aware of how goofy and pretentious he can be and has fun with it yeah i think of like um you know he also hangs out with people like you know hideo kojima who did like metal gear solid but also he's in death stranding like he plays a character in the video game Um, well kojima's in episode four he's the one who cuts the dude's finger off are you fucking kidding me that's him. I yeah. cuz they're they're best friends. Yeah. And he's he's the one who silently gets up when when you know he when Martin kidnaps the guy and takes him to this weird like Japanese gangster dojo thing that's going on. Korean. Oh, is that Korean? Okay, yeah. in like yeah, a random back alley or whatever in LA. Of course this exists in Nick Reffin's world, but like there's this whole ceremonial thing where the guy gets the money from like these gangsters, but that's Hideo Kojima who gets up and as, as penance cuts his finger off with a fucking samurai sword. And you're like, what is going on in this scene? Is this, that just feels like a thing. Cause here's the thing. As much as I love Nick Reffin, and I I do take into account that he talks a lot of shit, and in coming with shit talking, I wonder if stuff like the Nell Tiger free scene in the beginning that we just spent a whole bunch of time trying to break down and whatever, or like this scene that we're describing, there's a solid chance that Nick Reffin is like, wouldn't it be fucking cool and sexy if I just let my let my camera just linger over Nell Tiger free and like kind of fuck with you. Or wouldn't it be cool if Hideo Kojima just got up and chopped this guy's finger off in like the middle of this like ritualistic alone exercise or whatever. And you're like, there's no actual greater subtext to it. It's just like, this is fucking awesome. Right. And you're like, yeah, I guess. Well, cause he's like all up in the, like he's his, his friend group of like collaborators like, and just creative friends, like, Kojima and through that so I think it's how I met Mads Mikkelsen and got him for Death Stranding because he's the lead villain in Death Str- or lead villains and you know he's friends with Del Toro and it's just like this is this art house guy who just likes to fucking hang and fuck around and um but I lo- I actually really love that scene though like that that from the back alley dojo and they're doing the um almost like the zen style of of um archery where you, you're turned to the side and it's just the whole thing, and it's just fucking bananas. Like, it's so bananas. Now, I do want to ask to jump back to Vigo before we get into volume five. Uh, is Vigo a bad person, too? Because that's the other thing that I like is that Refn introduces the idea that the guy who gives Martin his purpose is like basically a modern like Travis Bickle type who talks about having like a religious awakening after getting shot in the head during his time at the FBI and who is more or less like whenever they're riding around in the car, he's like listening to borderline like apocalyptic like Infowars type shit. Yeah, I think that's definitely – if he's not a bad person, um, 
reference asking the question. And I think it gets back to what you're talking about where it's like the systems have failed our characters, but it's also like people are grasping for solid ground. Like Martin is grasping for a philosophy. He's grasping for like stability and he finds Vigo. And the kind of fucked up thing is like, like I agree, it has kind of that Travis Bickle thing where it's not this like knight in shining armor. It's like a disturbed guy who happens to be like Martin pointing his violence towards bad people like Dexter. You know, it's like, you're still a murderous psychopath, but you're just, you're just being, you're a tool being used to, to kill the right people. But on the wrong day, you could kill the wrong person and a good, you know, an innocent. I also do like how it starts with what appears to be almost like an addiction anonymous type meeting that turns out to be like PTSD survivors, but it puts Martin very much in the, the framework of being an addict, you know, and I wrote down in my notes, is there any difference between the philosophical violence that Martin and Vigo are engaging in and the systematic violence that he was basically engaging in as a police officer? Or is this just a guy who's literally addicted to violence and he uses the philosophy as like a justification for it? I think that's what's going on. I mean, I think that it's, I, I think it, I think if it were a different filmmaker, even with the same scripts, you could really paint Vigo as much more, uh, much more just like a, a clear hero. Like you could make him like a wiser, like you think about the Brian Cranston character in Drive. He's also very complex, but like you could have a character, an actor like Brian Cranston play Vigo and make him much more lovable and be like, I left it behind. Like the elements are there to make a more um relatable character but like the way that a reffin is doing it he's not allowing us to we're supposed to think that vigo's cool but i don't think beyond that we're supposed to be like this is a guy i should you know idolize or or think is like a more he's definitely in the moral compass of this world he he is the moral compass of this upside down world that doesn't mean he's good yeah, it doesn't mean the world is any less upside down, too. Absolutely. That, and maybe that's kind of the point is that the world is so fucked up that this is your hero now. Yeah, yeah. This is the best you can do. It's just the best you can do to be a good man in this world. It does have a very Michael Mannish uh, notion about masculine codes and, like, these ideas of these, like, guys kind of establishing their own morality, very much. And you know, I'm in for that shit. Um, I had one thing I wrote down that I forgot to mention though, is um, in the opening, in one of the opening scenes and they're in the, the PTSD anonymous group, the leader of the group. And I love that ending where he's like, we're gonna get some beers. It's PTSD, not AA. And um, that actor is the magician from demon wind. That fucking horrible, like horror. Film Holy from- shit. Yeah. And I was like, that's the guy from demon wind because they show that clip of him kick basically hacky sacking the um um the beer can in um some of the intro stuff for the alamo and so like that's the fucking guy from demon win and so yeah i looked him up and i'm like what a weird what a weird dude to get you know but i i love that scene so the end is so funny that that scene is like it's it's ptsd now hey, hey we're gonna get a couple beers come on um i just love it the only scene in volume four that I don't love is the weird moment where Billy Baldwin talks his daughter, Janie, into 
working for him after getting she gets accepted into Harvard. It's like the one scene where I'm like, all right, you guys are going too hard now. Like, I get it. She's like the whole idea of like, should she just kind of go follow her own path or just basically be enabled by like her her daddy and become part of that system? Like, there's a reason this episode is called The Tower, because it's literally about this gigantic set or like these different towers that we all live in, which represent like the different systems that we're essentially trapped in. And hers is like her dad's money. And like how, like if she wanted to, she could just lean on him and not do anything of her own for her entire life. But it's like, you're really like beating the shit out of that nail with a sledgehammer at this point. You know, strangely, I, I think you're right. That's the way to, you know, to read the scene. The, all I kept thinking about, I actually liked the scene a lot. Um, I kept thinking of the scene from Twin Peaks, the show where Bobby meets his dad at the diner and his dad oh, yeah. about his dream. And but that scene in Twin Peaks is so hopeful and it's one of the beautiful things that David Lynch has ever worked on is just the, the, the gorgeous moment of connection and of Tim telling about, you know, I had this dream of you, Bobby, where, what you could do with your life. And I agree. This is much more like the spider and the fly, right? Of like, Hey, like you have a chance to get out. Like you're this like really impressive person, but it kind of also connects her relationship with Martin that she has these guys in her life who really just don't allow her to be her full self. And she's not going to be able to grow into the person she could be under their umbrella, either of them, you know, Martin or her dad, right. In that world, like she has to get away. Well, the scene literally ends with Billy Baldwin talking about Martin fucking her. So it's like she's still nothing but a piece of meat even to her dad. Well, he says it he says it earlier in the scene, and the end is her like curled up in his lap. Um Ugh. and it's like, yeah, it's definitely it's it's weird. Um but I, I totally agree. It's definitely kind of like she but she needs to get out of this world like there seems to be a spark of humanity in her that will easily be crushed if she stays there for like three more years and and works in her dad's world and starts just doing massive amounts of cocaine with him what and what the hell else you know well it doesn't matter nothing ends good for any of these people by the end oh great i'm really i'm really excited to see (laughs) but you want to get into volume five let's do it Once there was just men and nature. Then men came bearing crosses. We used to believe that we were the center of the universe. That the sun and the stars all revolved around us. And we spent the last 500 years since Copernicus in this slow crawl to where we are now, to this pinnacle of human achievement, where we finally bent nature to our will. We split the atom. We broke the fabric of reality. That's how far we've come.
Now the lights of our city stretch further than the stars in the sky. But the more perfect society gets, the more psychotic we become. We evolved through brutality. That's why we had teeth and claws. Self-preservation was the highest law. But as time went on, the pack began to provide for us. And we abandoned our violent nature. But it never went away. Laid beside us in our sleep. Waiting. And as it waited, we became slaves to the systems we built. Now it's all falling apart. Soon our cities will be washed away by floods, buried in sand, burned to the ground. That's why you found me. Because you're no longer blind to all this. When I was in the Bureau, I got shot in the head. I lost my eye. My body deteriorated. And I died for three minutes. But when I came back from the other side, everything was clear to me. It was like I'd been given a gift. As the world fractures, someone, someone has to be there to protect innocence. So volume five, The Fool. Martin, how did you feel about rape porn? Um, well, not great about that, but this is easy. <laughs> this is my favorite episode. Um, this is like, again, its own, like it's a movie by itself, like an hour and 15 minutes. It fucking, it just burns through the plot. Um, it opens on a banger of a scene with James Urbaniak, just the most uncomfortable fucked up scene of him explaining to a young man what's going to be done to him and having him sign away his rights. And then ending with that horrible boys rape him. Okay. Boys rape him. It's like, Oh you know, talk about being on the nose, right? You mentioned about ref and not no subtlety there, but then just the. How's your of, asshole? Oh, just, <laughs> but the whole thing of it, it feels like there's also a, a, a reason for like Martin to be there. Like in the parts of the earlier, of the earlier part of the season, 
can feel aimless at times, right? Where it's people just kind of staring at each other and, and waiting. This is like, all right, no, he's on a mission. It's like, I'm going to infiltrate it. It reminds me of like a lot of cold in July, you know, of just like that whole segment of just finding his son and realizing there's this underground world of like of basically snuff and underground, you know, rape porn. Um, and it just like the car chase leading into like the comedy of like, a fucking electric car and the whole setup of he drives an electric car and the, the you know the usual part where you cut into a car during a car chase and it's completely silent because it's just the, the whine of the electric engine is fucking hilarious like this feels like it just tonally like for, considering the subject matter of the entire series is the most fucked up in this episode it's also the funniest at the same time it's so weird he's able to pull that off yeah it's his most darkly humorous work probably ever uh, because he there's a lot of other stuff too. That's like really, really funny in it. Um, Particularly like when Martin goes to the bar and tries to even hang out with them and they think he's like a total like weirdo. But then that again devolves really quickly into like one of the things that like helps him gain entry is that James Urbaniak is like blown away that his girlfriend that he, because the whole cover story that Martin provides for coming is that he broke up with his girlfriend and has just been on the road and is now randomly in Santa Fe, New Mexico. And it's like, but Urbaniak's blown away by the fact that the girlfriend he claims to have broken up with is 16. He's like, you fucked a 16 year old girl. It's almost like he, he found like a diamond in Martin to where he's like, this guy's going to be, it's like his bright shining star for his next fucking whatever rape porn vehicle. Yeah. It's so well, and it's the classic scene you get with like undercover stories, right. Of a person using the cop uses this real life trauma or real life, you know, story to get something done undercover. And this is this whole thing of like, to that point, Martin is kind of playing this role of like, hey, I'm a student from out of town. He's trying to be charming more, and he can't. He's super awkward. You know, he's like, I don't know anybody. Can I sit with you guys? He doesn't know how to even talk to other human beings and be, like, natural. But then if that's the moment where it's like, we know as the audience that he's not bullshitting. Like, this is actually real. And, and again, that connects you talking about the previous episode of, like, Martin's looking at these people and being like, you're all pieces of shit, but he's fucking a 16 year old girl. Like that's still the facts. Like it reminds you of like him being this undercover guy. It's still like, you're kind of as bad as them in some ways. Like you're not clean. Your hands aren't clean. Yeah. And to make, it's almost like being rape porn producers wasn't evil enough for Refn is that he literally makes them Nazi rape porn producers. Like Martin follows James Urbaniak to like a white power, like church meeting, which is so bizarre. That was such a weird fucking scene. It's confusing too at first. Cause you're like, what is this guy saying? You're like, oh, it's Nazis. Got it. Well, and it's again, sort of like the, uh, PTSD meeting in the beginning of, of volume four, this is showing like how these people inside of these like pockets of society that we don't normally see, like they form these like gatherings and support structures and everything around them. And like 
these guys literally founded like a white power church that again feels like it's right down the block from like your local Applebee's, you know, and, and these guys look like almost, they look more like this should be taking place in Salt Lake city. Like almost like they're Mormon rape porn, Nazi uh, producers. Yeah. It's such a, I love the world they build of Santa Fe. And it reminds me of, again, a lot of like the area of um, breaking bad, like the desert and just these like strip malls and just the kind of like barren nature of like that part of the country you know, compared to the kind of bustling LA that he's leaving, this is just like, there's just areas that are not looked at by police, by the authorities, like where stuff just happens. And it also seems kind of fucked up that like, it's legal what they're doing. Like they, they, he has the kids sign a contract in the opening scene that they're killing people too. But like a lot of the stuff they do is above board, which is so fucked up. It's fucked up that rape porn is the legal part. Like cuz exactly. obviously, yeah. you know, after the after the the huge car chase at the end, like Martin makes the little brother uh take him out and like dig up a girl that they've buried alive for whatever reason. Well, and that's a really interesting moment because like he's he's killed everybody but the second brother and He's basically over the brother with a gun and he and the brother's like, oh, are you here for the girl? And he's like, what girl? And in his mind, like he's imagining this is like a classic action or thriller where it's like this guy has been hired by a family to get this girl back. He's like this. He's vengeance. But like Martin doesn't give a shit about that. He just wants to kill these guys. It almost makes him like you see him click where it's like, oh, I should go get the girl. Like you see him take like a pause where he's like, is that my mission? And then it's like, you know, I see, I interpreted that a little differently in that it was almost like him realizing these guys are so awful that, and they've done so many terrible things that like anybody could be randomly coming for them at any time. It's like, if it wasn't him, it would be this guy coming to like rescue the girl or whatever. They just have their, all of their fingers and so many like poisoned pies. I like that idea too. I think it could be both though. I mean, I, I can, I can definitely, Oh sure. Yeah. I kind of interpret it as like, he, at least from a character perspective, takes a beat of like for, for Martin of like, wait, what am I? There's a girl too. It's just like, I have, it connects to your, those of like, there's no basement to the depravity, you know, these guys, like there's just, they'll do anything. Um, and I love the scene well, of him making you dig it, dig up her, her coffin it's like so funny well and the other thing that i really like too is that martin in defining his code refuses any kind of payment for this work and even yeah. damien goes oh you just want the blood and that he's he's now like tom sizemore in heat is that the action is the juice for him at this point for me the action is the juice I'm <laughs> I love him. I love him in that scene. But it's weird, too, is that, like, this might be the episode where I have the least amount of thoughts about it because it's so straightforward, yeah. except for the car chase set to Barry Manilow's Mandy, which is a transcendent moment of strange cinema. And, like, I, like I'm not going to lie. There's no way that Refn didn't, like – 
look at Twin Peaks The Return and be like, oh, I got to out Lynch Lynch here because like this feels like all of the classic Lynch, like lost highway shit of like headlamps in the dark, yellow dashes disappearing between a car, faces floating over mountains as as a, a vehicle like dis like basically disappears into the blackness of night like it's so lynchian the way like all of these images are like layered on top of one another and bleed into to each scene like there they, i i refuse to believe that that refin while like basically editing this when when twin peaks the return was airing didn't watch it and go oh fuck i gotta go even weirder with my shit well, it's it, the scene is so funny too because it's part of the chase where it's not a chase anymore. We're like Martin's going at full speed, so he's like four car lengths in front of this electric car behind him, and they're just driving. Like they basically get out of the city and they're in the desert, and they don't stop. And the song is playing, and it's like the least action-based car chase at this point because it's just like they're both they can't go any faster. It's like the fucking whole plot of like last jedi where like they're like ahead of the the first order and it's like they're kind of like slowly catching up and and they, the mandy comes in and it's so ridiculous and it's so fucking weird um but i i really it's so funny too like it just he's really fucking with us at that point Remember in the beginning when i told you as this went along you were going to fall more and more in love with it like as it went like this is we're we're only halfway there. Like it gets even stranger. And I, I you know, I you're right. I think like my thoughts at first were every episode was gonna be like two. That it was gonna be, you know, ten, you know, more, you know, thirteen hours of long, drawn out pans and you know, uh and tilts and 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 dollies and this one you know was like okay this is just like a really pared down like just thriller you know where it's like i'm gonna go and i'm gonna fucking kill these guys but with also it's it's one of the talkier episodes too like you get the whole you get these long like dialogue scenes like at the bar where he's trying to kind of infiltrate them and they're asking about his sex life and he's trying to like answer it the right way to get invited back um all of james urbaniac stuff he's so talky you know versus like no one talks in episode two i mean it's just like long stretches of nothing they're still drawn out to a near interminable length though like oh, there's all yeah. those beats in between like people talking he's he's not pacing the dialogue any quicker you know right. yeah you could drive a fucking semi truck through the pauses in this show now, I do think, too, uh, given the structure of the show, I think that's the thing that really blurs the line between, like, because, like, the big debate um, when Twin Peaks The Return came out is, like, is this TV or is this, like, an 18-hour movie? Like, how are we categorizing what Lynch is doing here? And I think, like... Too Old to Die Young blurs the lines even harder because how, of how it almost up shit, like shifts up and then downshifts to TV like stylings at like 
almost completely random instances. Like the first two episodes and really even episode three all feel like like straight up novelistic setup to where you could almost see like if this were on the page, it would be like told from the first person, but it would jump perspectives every time. It's like the first chapter is straight up from Martin's first person perspective. The second chapter is from Jesus's uh, perspective and then it's probably written in Spanish, frankly, because that's one of the the other most remarkable things about that episode is that it's almost 80 percent subtitled, you know, yeah. and like he made a foreign language film for fun. Yeah. <laughs> and then uh, you get to uh, volume three is probably from like John Hawks's perspective. And it's like, you know, he's really taking a cinematic approach there, but then four, five, and six, which six we won't cover today, but it does continue. Uh, we'll, we'll just stick with four and five feel like episodic television, like their setups. And I think that's an extension of the end of three to where like you kind of end on a cliffhanger of Vigo and Martin meeting in the diner and really kind of feeling each other out. And then you're in the lessons in volume four of Vigo kind of walking him through this world and showing him how to hunt these pedophiles. And five becomes the extension of, of the end of four. Like he's really like it's set up payoff, set up payoff, just narrative, like very linear, like narrative storytelling. Well, it's interesting too, because five for talking about TV structure, could almost be like a filler episode if you think of it a different direction of like any episode where a character leaves town or goes off on a solo adventure and like it kind of like that's kind of a thing you do in tv now i'm agreeing with you that the plot and this is very much continuing the arc of martin but like that's something you do in tv a lot where it's like let's just go to albuquerque or santa fe for an episode and have him go off or on like the ones where where like Walt and Jesse would like drive out into the desert and get into like weird adventures and breaking bad to where yeah, it was it's all it's a of a sudden. Yeah. Not quite bottle episodes, but like pretty close. Yeah, exactly. But then this one has like a definitive ending that feels like the, the halfway point. Like it's almost like if you were watching this in one, like however long, like 17 hour, like block, this is where the intermission would be, you know, because yeah. it ends with him releasing that girl from being buried alive. And then she stabs him and Martin is more or less like dying in the desert. And we get that weird, like hazy. It almost feels like his spirit is moving through the casino that he was tracking James Urbaniak in. And then it just goes to black. And like, if an intermission card came up after that, I would be like, Oh yeah, this is the perfect spot for this to happen. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, and again, it feels like things are happening, too, because there are moments in the early episodes where it's just like doesn't feel like plot points are coming. You know, it's very like, again, two plot points in episode two, maybe, you know, and it, this is like very like, oh, man, this is a this is a, it's a cliffhanger, too. You know, it's a classic cliffhanger. What's going to happen? Hero, you know, um, it's a Western too. Like the whole thing of like tune in next week to the Rifleman. To find out what happened, you know, so it has that kind of feel to it, that kind of dime novel feel. Now, here's here's another question I have um, kind of says where we are reaching the halfway point of this or, or straight up at the halfway point. 
one of the things I wondered and, and continue to wonder as we I revisit it and you watch it for the first time is how this work uh, escaped the consciousness, you know, and kind of like, it, you know, it felt like it came out like 10 people watched it, commented it on like my my Twitter feed and then everybody forgot it existed. You know, I wonder if the big mistake that Amazon made because it was so into the binge model, like when this came out and like no streamer was really doing a whole lot, like episodically, like everybody was just releasing seasons of television all at once. Yeah. I wonder if this would have benefited from something like a, a traditional release schedule, like how twin peaks, the return came out like, uh, uh, with episodes like one a week again just like old school television did because like i remember twin peaks the return when that summer when it came out that was one of the biggest like events ever like everybody yeah. was talking about it it really everybody. captured not quite the zeitgeist because i don't think it quite crossed over into the mainstream but like if you were into movies, like you were tuning into Showtime at the end of every week and being like, what the fuck is happening on Twin Peaks? Like it felt like an event again. He really like Lynch recaptured the uh, big television moment that he had initially created with the, the first season of it. Yeah, I've been thinking about that, too, as I've been watching the show. I don't think there's anything they could have done beyond not make the show. Um, and, and it's not, it's not, that's actually me not digging on the, not digging at the show. It's that, no, I get what you mean by it. Like, I think that, okay. Think about the return, right? You have Lynch who, if not a household name, like you said, in the film community is like beloved. I mean, like you, it's kind of like, you gotta love him. And I, you and I both love him. Right and love the original show the show is the original twin peaks has just gained notoriety and cult status for like you know what 30 some years between when it came out and when the return was on right so you're building well, up it was like it, it was one of the earliest examples too of like the troubled cut to short productions that came out of tv to where like you had the whole controversy of lynch leaving during season two and yeah. then the network wanting to rush the reveal of Laura Palmer's killer and, and how then it just totally died after they reveal her killer and like, didn't, and then, then they decided to basically cancel it. It was, I know this is a weird comparison, but it was like the Deadwood of its day to where like Deadwood, you got, you know, your first couple seasons and then it ended on a cliffhanger and HBO was basically like, we're done with this. It's too expensive. My uh, one of my favorite shows, also Showtime, was um, is Penny Dreadful, and they did the same thing where they were like they were like three episodes into like season three and setting up all these new characters, and then Showtime's like, yeah, we're not going to renew for season four, so they had to like deal with all these characters that they set up and kind of do something with them. But um, speaking to the the show here though, um. Refn does is nowhere near have the the street cred that David Lynch does with uh, I just don't think in terms of like with film with film lovers and I don't know how Amazon could have like advertised it better or whatever but like 
I think someone like Cronenberg could have had more legs, you know, where it's like, hey, at least you have the genre nerds like us were like oh my god like Cronenberg has a show the fact that I didn't watch all of the show and it came on and I'm a, I'm a reference fan like if I'm not watching it they fucked up somewhere that's like my belief that's fair yeah I just what, wonder if it would have might have also had time to gain traction instead of just coming because I, I do think there's something to be said for the idea of like building an audience week by week too to where like the first couple go and like people people just don't do what you did, which was bail after the first two, because you're like, fuck this. This is what this is going to be the whole time. And really, it evolves into kind of not something quite else, but like it 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 develops and its structure kind of organically reveals itself. I wonder if like over the couple weeks, like the people who did hold on would would actually reattract the people who watched the first couple and they get caught up on it because they're like, no, no, no. It's like you got to get through all the Mexico shit and whatever. But like by the time you get to the middle of it, like it's really cooking with gas and it's worth kind of seeing it uh, build itself up, you know? Yeah, I think another option too. this would actually change the film itself or the show itself would be if I was an exec at Amazon when this was pitched to me, I say, all right. We're going to do four movies. They're all two hours long and we're going to release them one a week. Like I would, and I would call them a movie and I would, and you know, I said, I want to structure like a movie. I'm going to come in, you do your thing, but like, we're going to call the movies, you have different titles and it's going to be one universe. Almost like I think Netflix was so smart with fear street that they released one a week. And it was like these sequels that were all part of the same world. And you kind of, and obviously a much different kind of story. I mean, like very different, but like, that was really cool. It kind of got got me hooked, you know. Maybe I mean I wonder if Reffin would have even gone for that though because it exactly. feels like the structure itself is a provocation to where he's almost again daring you to sort of stick with it the whole time. So to him, it's almost like releasing them as individual movies would be betraying kind of its purpose in a weird way because the format itself is part of like the fun for him of being like, Oh no, I'm going to stretch this out over 18 hours and I'm going to have you fucking, I'm going to drop it all at once. And you're going to be like, what's going on here. And either you stick with it or I'm going to completely like steamroll you and you're, you're never going to come back. And we talked about this in the first, our first episode about this, but like, I think it was a fool's errand to do the show for Amazon. I think it was, I think the Amazon exec who greenlit this was not intelligent. I'm glad the show was made, but like it was not a good business proposition to make like at all. This is like the guy who like greenlit Sorcerer and was like, yeah, just go out in the fucking, you know, like. Yeah, free can go to the jungle. It'll be fine. You fire the crew every day. I don't care. Here's some more money. Oh, you want to like really drive that truck and almost kill Roy Scheider? Fine. You know, like it has that, again, new Hollywood energy to it of like insanity. Yeah, how streaming became the Wild West to, in that those early days of being like, sure, we don't know what we're doing either. So here's a bunch of money and do whatever you want with it. Yeah, we don't need to get people in seats like as long as like we can put it all over our homepage and show we have content. Let's roll with it's it. It's all content. All we're yep. doing. We don't even know how we're measuring this shit yet. <laughs> Just make more. Oh, it's and guess what? Long? Great. Awesome. <laughs> yeah, as long as they keep watching, and honestly, even if they don't, who gives a shit? <laughs> it's just sitting there. That's the thing. I was, I was like, I was like scanning through through Amazon Prime, and like, 
like in nowhere is it obviously it's been out for years now is it advertised like you have to like dig deep to get (laughs) you have to search for it it's not even in my recommended shows it's just so it's almost like they disowned it honestly oh yeah it feels like they were like this was the bad idea that we have and like it's there but you gotta look for it Uh, we 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 stuck it in amazon's attic (laughs) absolutely i felt so much like Oh, if I yeah. like a porn mag under like your uncle's bed or something, I'm like, oh, I wasn't supposed to find this shit. Here, in your recommendations, though, here's 100 standard deaf Columbo episodes. Enjoy. <laughs> here's the free. Again, we don't know what metrics we're operating on, but we hope you watch anything. We're throwing pickles at the wall. We're fucking rolling with it. So, <laughs> you want to get to drive? Let's do it. All right. Nick Reffin's drive from 2011. Martin, this is still the one, right? Like this is this is his home run. This is the like I feel like it's the indisputable masterpiece Nick Reffin has made. Probably the only one. Yeah, I think it's. I mean, it's at once its most accessible film. The fact that it had the largest largest kind of fan base, um, but also it it moves like a normal movie. Um, so. Maybe it doesn't succeed on reference terms, but it succeeds more in our terms, what we want from like a movie with a structure. Um, I think he has other stuff. It's like really interesting, but like, this is the one that just like fucking moves, good thriller, good fucking music. The soundtrack's unbeatable. Um, the soundtrack alone was, was culturally significant. Everyone was like into Synthwave after that. Everyone was like, who's Johnny Jewel? You know, and even Cliff Martinez, like people started listening to him. So um, I think I think this is the one uh, Gosling's never been cooler. I mean, he's straight up just like he's lovable, but also badass, like very much movie star quality stuff. You know, it's my favorite Gosling cool performance. It's not this movie. It's crazy, stupid love. Oh, he's just full on sex hot, like just the sexiest man ever. 
He's really good in that movie. To me, that's his ultimate movie star performance. Like where you just yeah. get the total like gosling in that one. I think one of the issues I've had with Drive is similar to like like Fight Club where it's just been talked about to death and like it's not fair to the film itself that it just like has become a lot of people who annoy me just like oh my god have you seen Drive it's like I've fucking seen Drive. You know, it just I that whole it got too popular in a way and kind of lost its cool factor for me for a bit. Yeah. I usually dislike this argument of like the bad fan, you know, but this like Scarface and fight club and a lot like clockwork orange is another one that comes to, to the top of my head is like the movies that became like the film bro, uh, big flag posts let's say to where like or 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 red flags in this case is Mm -hmm. that like if somebody instantly listed drive as like one of their favorite movies you're like uh like you know this guy's probably got some issues um because it, it it it's interesting and i wonder if this is part of why refin himself doesn't particularly like he considers considers it a masterpiece but hates the the success of it because and has moved kind of further and further away with each movie culminating in too old to die uh young with like an even slower even more methodical and fetishistic kind of uh application of his style is that like there were dudes wearing like scorpion jackets and shit after this and you were like man you don't have to do that. Like the movie's cool by itself. Like <laughs> please stop you're not, doing that. <laughs> you're not Ryan Gosling, so could we put that in the closet or burn it? I don't know. I think um we've talked this before, but I love that only God forgives. Like very quickly, he's like, just as no mistake, these are the kind of movies I really make. And then he comes out with that, and it's like a complete because like they advertise it. Like, obviously, the studio was like, well, we want to get that drive money. So we're going to advertise it as like a sequel to almost to drive thematically and with the whole look and the whole synth, everything. And then you watch the movie and it's not that at all. It's a quick turnaround. Yeah, it's he uses Ryan Gosling as an action figure in, in Drive and in Only God Forgives, he just used him as like a sack of hamburger to like beat the shit out of because like it's all about how Gosling's like an ineffectual mama's boy who just gets the shit hammered out of him while he's going to basically more or less avenge his like pedophile brother. Like Refn is, is real big. Yeah. Yeah. He He's real big into, uh, pedophiles being the the villains i almost just left it at he's real big into pedophiles or the hero i mean martin's a pedophile so yeah like they populate his universes like they're they're almost like omnipresent in a weird way well the whole energy of neon demon is pedophilia it's this this beautiful young girl in la and it's like the whole town wants to eat her like it just has this feeling yeah like the, the LA itself is just a fucking pedophile. And it's like the, the, the raw, horrible energy of a hungry town like that. Um, and you don't drive is so much more romantic, you know, like we talked earlier that like, 
the first 40 minutes are just like so lovable and it's just this kind of like wonderful meet cute between them that just like slowly this very element again very elemental love between Irene and the driver and everything like I mean uh Brian Cranston's character is just this like maybe the most lovable character ever in any Reffin film you know just like this great down home like dad or uncle figure you know just he's so charming he can't help but just be like charming as all get out um until what is the well, and it's like the the first forty minutes of Drive is that the only time in his whole career where Reffin has ever been like warm? It's all I can think of, um, because every time it gets warm in Bronson, he pulls the rug, and it's like wink, wink. I was just fucking with you. Like it's completely misanthropic. Like Drive is really warm and like really human and like. And again, back to the Michael Mann stuff, I mean, it has the love elements of thief or the love elements of manhunter of man and woman. You know, I'm your, you know, you're my man, I'm your woman, which she says to him in thief is very much present here. Um, But it's just, it's very hopeful too at the beginning. And it's just this like wonderful progression of like, like one of my favorite shots that reference ever done is with Benicio's head on his shoulder and it's the shot from behind and they're walking down the, the hall slow-mo yeah and she's walking behind looking at her son being held by like this father figure and it's like this it's like shame or something it's like a western like beautiful this guy this this lone writer came into their life you know it's very western um and it pulls on a lot of a lot of cinematic history um very Kubrick shot too it's like a more beautiful, like less creepy version of like Eyes Wide Shut, you know, like there were a lot of stuff that Darren Aronofsky does and his stuff like in the fountain, but it's like he just uses it to different effect. Um, I, I love that shot so much. It's so romantic. Well, and the driver is almost like an inversion of Martin, too, because yeah. where Martin starts out cold and and is had all of his humanity kind of like sanded off by the systems that he exists inside. The driver is presented to us as the hero. I think that's the big thing Yeah, where the misinterpretation of the movie comes from is that like when you wear the scorpion jacket, you're literally wearing the uniform of a straight up psychopath because the, the movie pulls the rug out from underneath you and that it presents the driver as the hero as this guy, like you said, a Shane type who rides in and is going to save this family when the, they're, you know, the shitty husband who's played by fucking Oscar Isaac, you know, comes <laughs> in it. and like he and gets involved. And it does have a very Western setup to where it's like the bad men come. And if something doesn't happen, they're going to kill the family. So the, the lone cowboy stands up for them. Only the lone cowboy moves further and further away from the human uh, hero that we get in that first 40 minutes. And by the end is more or less like Michael Myers, like in a mask, just hunting people down like a slasher. Like there's even that amazing slaughter in the elevator, like right after where Carrie Mulligan sees how dehumanized that the guy becomes that it's just like, he's an instrument. Well, and I think that scene is really beautiful because he kisses her almost goodbye. Like he, when he, right. I, I always interpret that as he kisses her to be like, I've always loved you since I met you. 
say goodbye to what's left of me because I'm going to do something now to save you. And you're going to see who I really am and what I've become because the element, you know, speaking of Martin and like not having the context to where he came from, we get a little bit of the backstory of the driver where, you know, Shannon, the Brian Cranston character tells Irene, you know, he showed up one day and was just like naturally good at cars. And the way I always interpreted it, it was like, he came from a really violent background, like ran away from that. He knows how to use a gun. He says, I don't use a gun because I feel like he came from that. He's very capable with all those things. I think that's inside him. And he's been kind of trying to like have a normal life. Um, that's kind of how I interpreted his background. And then he is brought into now the more horrible side of his humanity or back to what he was before possibly see i always interpreted it as like when they talk about sociopaths is a lot of the time that they can't connect with human emotions but like machines make sense to them things where you know you can figure out how to fix parts on a car or oil something to where an engine runs perfectly again where like you might not understand love or fear or hate or, or kindness or anything like that because there's just a p- a switch in your brain that has never kind of been clicked on, you know? And yeah. that's how I always interpreted him is that, like, he had figured out a way to essentially hide inside a society because he became a mechanical instrument a lot of the same uh, – much like the same way that the cars that he works on are only – he applies himself to like the only things he's good at. And the only real thing he's good at is driving to where, whether it be for the movies and making himself again, like a blunt instrument that's just kind of tossed around and used to stand in for movie stars. Or if he's going to be, you know, a race car driver for Brian Cranston's mechanic and Albert Brooks's like gangster, like that's what he can do. And that's how he's basically figured out how to exist inside of society to where then he locks on to Carrie Mulligan. And it's almost like this foreign concept of like, Oh, there's something more than just getting up every day, working on cars and driving is like, I actually am feeling something for the first time, but in having to, you know, uh, you know, Refn's real big into men as monsters, you know, and it's a, about how he has to almost become or reconnect with this monstrous thing sort of inside of him that you're talking about with his background, that it's almost like he has to move away from humanity and become an instrument again to avenge her. And through like, even though he like got to know love is that like, yeah, he kisses her goodbye and, and is like, no, I'm just now a dehumanized like death machine again. Yeah, and it's, I mean, to put on also, like, the stunt mask, right, of the, of the movie star that he's playing, it's like, he's giving himself over, as you said, to just being the tool, you know, it's like, I am no longer me at all, you know, I am just a stand-in, I'm just here to do the, do the, do the job, which is to kill, you know, everyone, um, and well, it also reminds me of, like, a direct Halloween reference to where, like, the Michael Myers mask was always like literally a movie star's face. It was William Shatner to spray paint it over. And here it's a guy wearing a movie star's face and becoming just like, again, this blunt instrument of like death and evil. <laughs> I love that. But the other thing too, about drive that I, I totally forgot is how the soundtrack, like you said, it's notable for how, 
the soundtrack kind of uh, penetrated pop culture even more than the the movie did. And the movie was a decent hit. Like I saw this twice on the same night uh, when it first came out because like I saw it in the afternoon because I was off of work and was like so blown away by it that after my my ex-wife now ex-wife i should say got off of work i was like there's this movie you gotta see and like we should just go tonight and she's like oh okay cool if you want to see it twice in the same day like it must be good and she even was like yeah this is insane and it also began like a love affair with ryan gosling for both of us um when i think of drive i think of the first time i saw it and i went with my friend john my friend steve and um i sat next to john and john like is into he loves like synth wave and before this and was like very similar tastes and stuff. And I think it was in the opening credit, the, se- the second credits where it's Night Call by Kavinsky, right? And I just turned to him. I go, this is perfect. You know, and I was like, that was like five minutes into the movie and I already knew that like I was, this was made for me. And he was like, oh yeah, dude, I'm so fucking in. Like, I'll never forget the that. opening credits are some of the greatest ever. They rank with seven at like amongst like the most iconic movie credits of all time. But I think what's fascinating about it to bring it back to the soundtrack is that he uses it almost like a Greek chorus at times oh, yeah. to where like, you know, college is uh, real human and real human being like he's sort of signaling what the movie's about. Even through the soundtrack is that like, we're supposed to believe in this guy. Like he's supposed to be, you know, our savior only when he eventually like basically goes away from being that and just becomes the devil. Well, when you think about like the night call song by Kavinsky, it's like, there's something inside you. It's hard to explain. Yeah. And it's like, it's talking about the Gosling character. It kind of reminds me of like the way that Brian, that, um, Paul Schrader uses music, you know, especially like in like, we talk about like light sleeper, like that. It's not Brian Ferry, but the other guy he uses that is like a Greek chorus where it's like, that's the internal monologue of Willem Dafoe's character in song form, you know, and it kind of gets back to the point you said about it's kind of being a musical in general, you know, of using these songs and, and, and again, not being subtle about what the words mean, you know? Well, and, it kind of reinforces what he wanted to do in terms of like making the movie more or less a feeling than an actual narrative, even though as we've kind of gone over, like this has the most clear cut a to B narrative that's probably ever existed inside of a Nicholas Winding Refn movie. But second sight, uh, which is a great uh, Blu-ray company who's done a bunch of really amazing um restorations and box sets like they have one for like raw lake mungo um they did uh, the dawn of the dead like right. massive 4k restoration and then they did a drive set that just came out too which is huge it's as big as their dawn of the dead one but on the back nick reffin wrote this long introduction to try and capture like what he was trying to achieve with drive and what he thinks he achieved with drive And he talks about it being a fairy tale and how he was trying to convey this like almost like mythic feeling of like, like you said, almost like Western, but you're, you're operating archetypes and everything, but that he also wanted it to feel like a hit of good cocaine that made you want to just keep coming back over and over again and getting that charge. But the crazy part about it is that he goes, the colors are cranked and they look the way they are because I'm colorblind. 
Like I have to direct things a certain way and I have to look at the world a certain way and use certain colors because he can't see other colors. So the design almost becomes purely how he sees the world. I love that. But I also love that neon aesthetic. You know, I love the result. Right. You know, it's interesting to think it's where he's coming from. Um, Might be somewhat apocryphal too, because it still has a stylistic choice of he likes neon hues. He obviously has DPs he works with, you know, he can talk well, like him. we said, he talks a lot of shit. Yeah, that seems because there's bit. there's also the famous story about this. Like I on the last installment of this miniseries, you talked about how he and Gosling really developed more or less like a bromance and and fell in love with one another and working together. That's why they they Reffin like kind of invented only God forgives as like an excuse for them to make another movie together. But there's that story that came out either during the press run for Drive or Only God Forgives. I can't remember where I think it was Gosling gave an interview where he talked about the first time that he met Nick Reffin and they went to dinner and it was like super awkward. No, it was from Reffin's point of view because Reffin was like, I didn't know how to talk to this guy. Like he's a movie star. I'm kind of like this weirdo filmmaker who hasn't really done anything yet. And he's already been like in movies and gotten like, a you know, Academy Award like nominations and shit like that. And he's so they're kind of fidgeting around or whatever. And they go to dinner and he's like, ah, I blew it. Like almost being like on a date, you know, and being like, oh, I blew it. Apparently they were driving home and some I'd have to look it up, but some like 80s power ballad came on. And they started like singing it together. And he said by the time, like, cause I, I believe he was giving, he, he didn't drive at the time. So he was giving Gosling a ride or maybe it was vice versa. But like one or the other was giving each other a ride because the other one couldn't drive, which made it ironic for a movie called drive, you know, but they're listening in the car on this awkward ride home during this terrible mandate and this, this power ballad comes on and they start like singing it together. And he said, by the time that they pulled up to drop each other off, like they were in tears together and they're like, yeah, we got to do this movie. And you're like, okay, weird. I guess. Well, after, I think if they had played their cards differently after um, drive and not done the immediate uh, middle finger, that is only God forgives. Um, to to the the general fan base and the general audience, they wanted to do uh, Joe Dorowski's The In Call, the comic book, um, which is like one of my favorite comic books of all time. And um, he was gonna so now, now Taika with Titi's doing it, but everyone's been attached to this. Ugh. I know I'm done with him. Um, but um, and Fifth Element's basically The In Call has kind of already been made really well by Luke Passan, but like that was the thing they wanted to do and like they that movie would have been like 250 million dollars it would have been like enormous you know but again like they pretty much burned their bridge like right away because like after only god forgives it was like they had no street cred together as a team but if you after drive they could have really they had done one more for us or like for the like for hollywood they could have been doing like a 200 million dollar movie together if, if they had wanted to, but I don't think Reffin has interest in that. No, that's not the Nick Reffin way. I mean, like, cause he, you know, famously flirted with making a bond movie too, was like yeah. the big, 
rumor. Like, so it's not like he wasn't offered stuff. And I guarantee you, he's been offered a star Wars or a fucking, you know, Marvel Marvel thing or whatever. And he's just kind of like, no, that's not my, like, he wants to make Nick Reffin movies. I think that's why like you break, bring up how like he's pals with like Guillermo del Toro and Hideo Gojima and stuff. And that it's like, they all love each other because they're visionaries and they want to make the movies that they want to make. Like Del Toro's version of that is fighting to get a fucking Hellboy movie made. You know, Kojima basically exists in his own universe of creation. So it's like, these guys are all these singular sort of talents who hang out and bond, like bro down and bond together. Like Nick Reffin on a franchise film doesn't make any sense in my head. No, he can't. There's no, he can't tow, he can't even tow a narrative line, let alone like a tonal one or like, hey, say to, you know, house style, you know, like there's no fucking way he would do that. Imagine what his bond would have looked like. I feel like there's elements of like what Fukunaga did in terms of like the color scheme, at least of like the kind of a lot of the scenes of very. Well, you too. you do get Mickelson as the, the bad guy in Casino Royale. So yeah, like who's literally whipping Daniel Craig's nuts only in Reffin's version of that. Like it would have been like 007 would have been in like a leather cup or something. And like Mickelson comes out in like a mask and starts like hitting like he's w- wearing like a luchador mask and starts like whipping him over and over until they both are like have huge boners. Well, that's what's funny, though, is like, you know, I'm not going to give a hundred what most credit to Reffin for discovering Mickelson because Mickelson wouldn't be in fucking Casino Royale without Reffin, without the Pusher trilogy. Yeah. So it's like, that's what he was known for internationally. That's how he got that role. So like in a weird way, <laughs> Reffin has really helped a lot of people. And he, I think he really helped Gosling too. Like, I think, I think Drive really shot him forward in terms of like movie star potential. Well, it was also one of those, we talked about this in the last episode too, is that it was also in that period where he was still oscillating between indie stuff and bigger like blockbuster type movies and making the notebooks of the world while also making like... The Believer. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. God, that movie is fucking crazy. But it's like, you know... Reffin certainly has an eye for talent because, I mean, look at the cat. This cast like really follows the Jonathan Demi rule of every character should be played by like somebody we kind of recognize at the very least. It's why he has like Roger Corman showing up as like governors and shit in, in Silence of the Lambs. <laughs> but it's like here every role is crazy. It's like Oscar Isaac, obviously before he was really like Oscar Isaac and star Wars and shit. But I mean, like he's got a young Oscar Isaac and Carrie Mulligan right on the cusp of like, right before she, she gets nominated for an Academy award too, for like an education. Yep. Um, and then Gosling of course, but then casting Albert Brooks against type as like a murderous gangster who has some of the best scenes in the movie, Ron Perlman showing up, as his brother, Brian Cranston, right at the beginning, basically, of, like, his Breaking Bad kind of ascension. Like, it's a really stacked movie. Yeah, it's it's insane. Just, like, Christina Hendricks, you know, just every small every small character is just like, oh, hey, it's that person, you know? And it's like and, you've got the curviest woman ever to be the silent partner on a heist. 
Like, okay. And she wears heels to watching her try to walk away with that money bag is so fucking funny. She's got those like pencil heels and she's got the like skin tight jeans and she looks like a fucking um character from like the fighter, like one of the sisters from like the fighter. (laughs) (laughs) I heard somebody one time I it was on some podcast, so I apologize to whoever I'm ripping off right now, but I heard somebody refer to her as attainable Chris. Christina Hendricks in Drive, as opposed to like <laughs> Dream Woman and Mad Men. Yeah, yeah, she definitely has. I mean, she's definitely doing that like, kind of a trashy. Like she's got the hoop earrings and everything, you know. Again, kind of like a Boston party girl kind of thing from from the Fighter. Is been. I think it's. I don't think it's attainable though. I still think she's way out of everyone's league in this movie. Yeah, she. I mean, she's possibly the hottest woman who ever lived. So. Sure. <laughs> but now I'm glad that we revisited Drive because it was a great reminder of how like how much greatness Refn is capable of when he sort of cuts his bullshit a little bit. Because the other thing that, you know, we've kind of hit on already, but like watching this in the midst of revisiting all of too old to die young makes you go, Oh wow. It's crazy that he made things that were paced like a real movie before, <laughs> like for all it's, of its indulgence and everything, like it's, it actually moves. Well, I think we were talking earlier before we were recording, but like, I feel like for me drive is the perfect balance of like the stat style, but it doesn't go over the hill and lose me. And like, it, it still is restrained enough where it's like the movie is still again, paced like a movie, but it's stylistic as fuck. It's beautiful. It's romantic versus like, again, episode two of to old die young, you don't have, it was just complete indulgence. Like that is like beyond way well over that hill of indulgence. Um, for good. It doesn't or- stop dead to watch a character who will later be killed in the very same episode, like hose down a woman, cut off her clothes and then paint her toenails for no narrative purpose whatsoever outside of like, and that goes on for six minutes in volume five, a tool to die young. The one that we're comparing to drive is the most linear still has a moment where the whole narrative just stops dead to watch this bizarre scene that, you know, Refn had in his head that kind of makes the quiet parts of his work loud. And it's like, it's all about fetish, like fetishizing, get it. (laughs) But Martin, this has been great. Indeed. Still got two more parts to get through. So it gets even weirder and darker. And then next week, we're also going to be covering Nick Reffin's Viking opus Valhalla rising, which also features a character with one eye, a lot like Vigo. I'm in. But I can't wait because I haven't watched that in many, many years. But you'll have to stay tuned to the next episode of Secret Handshake.